Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever gives divorce his wife Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Mike. As we come to our text this morning... I'm intimately aware that everyone in the room has been affected by divorce in some way. Uh, That may be because you know someone, friend, family member who's been divorced. Maybe uh, your parents have been divorced, whether you're a teen or an adult. Maybe you have experienced divorce. And when the subject comes up, you know, we're just reading two verses and right out of the gate, some of you are experiencing the emotions of pain, regret, hopelessness, the feelings that one feels when a death has happened, loneliness. Maybe some of you are feeling no matter how you were affected, you're like, God, why did you let this happen to me? Why is this happening? When is the pain going to end? Many times we can come to this passage, we're looking for answers, or we come to the the text of Scripture, we're looking for a particular answer for a reason, either to justify a decision or to find some comfort, and there's just kind of this tension that's there, and oftentimes these two verses can be pulled out and not preached in context, because we need to just remember, friends, before we jump into this text, that it comes in context, and the context is the Sermon on the Mount, and at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we know that Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them. And so these words come in the context of of one who's delivering these words. His name is Jesus. He's the one who came completely selfless. He's the one who would speak, and when he would speak to individuals, there was this unique thing that would happen. He could speak truth that would cut to the heart, only it came with love and graciousness and compassion. People weren't left with condemnation. They were left with a grace that they had never experienced before in their life. And so it's important for us, friends, to have that in the back of our minds as we come to this text, the one who's speaking it, the way in which he's speaking it. It's not one standing up, pounding a pulpit. It's one who's seated, 
who's teaching, wanting to redirect our hearts towards the kingdom. And there's truth that we need to learn from this text. And there's response that we need to have as a church to this text. But there is no way that we can cover every single situation that is affected by this text in the 30 to 40 minutes that we have this morning. There's no way. Books have been written on this subject that are worthy of studying. But I think the Lord has some things to share with us, and we can sit at the foot, at the feet of Jesus this morning. But before we need, before we do that, I need God's help. We need God's help to hear from him, so let's pray. Father, I ask that you would lead us this morning. We need you. We need you to hear the truth, to go against the grain of what the culture tries to tell us, but we need you to experience grace and not leave here with condemnation, but rather we leave here with conviction where we need conviction, and we leave here aware of what Christ has done. Redirect our hearts this morning towards your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, as we come to these two verses, remember they come in the context, not only of the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus was speaking in verses 17 to 20 about the fact that he came and he fulfilled the law, right? Jesus came to fulfill the law, and at the end of that passage, in verse 20, he says, unless you're righteous... This exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's this call because the Pharisees were all about like finding out the law, finding out a particular thing, and hey, we just want to find out the thing we have to do, and then we just check off the box and we do it, but our hearts aren't engaged. Our hearts are completely far, and Jesus wants to redirect and say, no, we want, I want your whole life. I want your heart. Your heart has to be in it. There's a reason that these things were shared in the law, and you have to be fully engaged with that and understand that. So we learned about that in regards to anger, and then last week we learned about that in regards to lust, as Mark brought the word last week, and so this week we learn about that in, in the truth about divorce. And Jesus starts in verse 31 was, it was also said. And so he's referencing the Old Testament. He's referencing, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, those who heard these words and those that Matthew was writing to, they were very familiar with the Old Testament because that was their Bible at the time. So you're just like, why did Jesus only give two, two verses to this? How come he didn't, didn't share a lot more? There's a lot, a lot of questions I've got. Well, they already came with lots of Knowledge. There was a lot behind it that they already understood. And so that's where we're going to start to understand where they were at. What did the Old Testament teach? Why was Jesus bringing this up now? Because what did the Pharisees teach about this? And then what is he actually saying as he's unpacking this truth? So what did the Old Testament teach? Well, obviously, this is a command that was there. You should give it a certificate of divorce. But let's go back even further than the law to Genesis chapter 2. You can flip there if you want. Genesis chapter 2. 
Let's just start with marriage. Before we get to divorce, we'll start with marriage. Verse 18 says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then jump down to verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So really, we start with marriage. God intended for marriage to be one flesh, to be this relationship where there was this intimacy that rivals no other, where not, it's not only just a physical intimacy, but complete emotional openness and, and, and transparency. It was this beautiful thing, and it was meant to not just last a lifetime. You remember when marriage was instituted, the fall had not yet happened, so it was meant to last forever, not just for life, forever. That, that's what God intended. His life, his, his design was, the, the ideal was lifelong faithfulness. But we all know as we keep reading that the fall happened and sin came into the world and then everything got all messed up. Everything did. And the, the people that God had created started to do that which God did not create them to do. And so he had to initiate the law. So what did the law say? So if you flip in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 24, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. This is what the law said. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, he then, uh, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in a, uh, her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she had been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord. And the Lord speaks to these things in other places in the law. And so we can immediately go like, okay, well, what's the rules? What's the thing that we need to follow? But why did God put this in this place? What was the law intended to do? He wasn't trying to change something. He wasn't trying to say, well, this, there's something different now. I'm, I'm okay with it. No, there was chaos that was taking place. And so God's bringing some order in the chaos, and in giving the law, he wanted to direct the hearts of his people to the spirit of the law. Now, just a side note, like even as we read this or we read the text that Jesus wrote, it has this feel of like, well, what about the, what about the wife in this? It seems like the guy gets to make the whole decision. What am I just left out here hanging in the wind? There's nothing I can do with this. Now, we, we need to understand the reality of that women didn't have the rights in those days as they would have in our day. And so when we hear Jesus speaking to these things, speaking to men and women, it's not just the guy that has this responsibility. But let's understand the spirit of it and let's understand some, some things about the law. Well, one thing is in regards to adultery. Like when we read the law, Jesus talks about adultery here in the New Testament. Why doesn't it talk about adultery in the Old Testament? Well, it does talk about adultery in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, if you're adhering to the law and you committed adultery, if it was found that you committed adultery, you were put to death. 
So you're, you were freed from your marriage uh, as a result of death because that was the consequence. So Jesus didn't have to speak to that. But in the time of the New Testament, they had kind of fallen out of practice of adhering to the law fully because they were making up all these other rules. So that's why he speaks to that. Another thing you have to understand about the law is it limited divorce. It actually was to cause the, the man, the husband, to pause before he would, would, would hand the certificate of divorce because they were just having divorce just freely happening. And it would cause him pause because this would have to be a, a witnessed by two or more. And, and they had to understand the seriousness of this. And it was used to protect women and children rather than the wife be exposed to being exploited she had a way to be protected. She had a way to be remarried. So in that time, like to not be married was just kind of, could be destitute so that it opened up the door for her protection. And we all know that when divorce happens, like when there's kids involved, there's mess with all of that. So we have to see that God was not advocating for divorce in creating the law, nor was he commanding it, but he was reducing the chaos that was going out. But his ideal was still lifelong faithfulness because God hates divorce. In Malachi 2.16, the New Living Translation says this, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Let's just be clear. As hard as that is to just hear, and I understand there's experiences and there's different emotions that are coming up, like that's just not God's desire. It's not his design, and he doesn't delight in seeing the pain and suffering that's happened. But we need to understand the context. And then as we come to the New Testament that Jesus is teaching into, the Pharisees are teaching. What are they teaching? Because the same patterns that were happening in the Old Testament are happening in New Testament times where people are just taking divorce lightly. And there's no coincidence of where this happens in the Sermon on the Mount. It happens right after lust because it's really the lust of the heart and discontentedness that really leads to divorce. People desiring something that they're not getting. And so it is in context, but one commentator really described the Pharisees in this way. The Pharisees actually taught that if a man ceased to like his wife or for any reason found her to be unsatisfactory to him, that, in a sense, was uncleanness. How typical this is of the teaching of the Pharisees and scribes and their method of interpreting the law. But in reality, they were avoiding the law in principle as well as in letter. The result was that at the time of our Lord, terrible injustices were again being done to many women who were being divorced for most unworthy and frivolous reasons. There was only one factor that really mattered to these men. That was the legal one, giving the bill of divorcement. And so Jesus wants to put a stop to that. Jesus wants his disciples, and then later on as he talks to the Pharisees, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, he wants them to rethink divorce. It's not about the bill. It's not about the law. It's not about just checking off the box so that you can have a, a clean conscience or you can get what you want. 
or you can find yourself to have an out. No, he wants our whole heart. So what does Jesus teach? Because his goal was to correct the false interpretation of the law. Let's look at what Jesus teaches. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now Jesus goes into a more detailed interaction later on with the Pharisees, which kind of helps us to understand it a little bit more. We're not going to study that whole section, but Jesus emphasizes the sanctity of marriage that we talked about in the Old Testament that the hearers would have understood. This is what he said in, in chapter 19. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. She just wants to understand, marriage isn't a contract. It's not an agreement ratified by paper, even though when we do marriages, we go to the county courthouse and we get a paper and a document. It's not, it's not about that. It's a covenant, lifelong commitment before God to be only separated by death. One flesh is important. Jesus' goal is not to, to share something to give an out, but to come to this subject Sometimes people come to the subject looking for an out. Like, what does the Bible say? I'm, I'm looking for an out. That's really the heart behind it. I'm looking for an out. I'm looking for some kind of salve for my wound to make it okay. But Jesus isn't commanding divorce. He's allowing for it in certain circumstances, but he's not commanding it. Because we have to start with the reality that Jesus is wanting lifelong commitment. He's wanting there to be forgiveness and mercy, like what he talked about in the Beatitudes. We need to put away, if we are in the context of marriage and there's the thoughts, you know, is this going to be the easy way out? She spoiled my life. He, I just can't put up with him anymore. Friends, I'm going to stop and remember that we are all unworthy, undeserving sinners. Yes, if we have trusted in the Lord Jesus, we are now found in him. We are defined by that. But we're only worthy because of his righteousness. Whenever I perform or whenever I officiate at a wedding or whenever I go to a wedding, there's a reality that there's two people that get married, but it's two sinners that get married. Some of them saved by grace and certainly pursuing Christ, but they're two sinners who are getting married. So they're going to have issues. So we should not be shocked when our spouse sins. We rather were to be amazed by God's grace. We all need God's grace. We're all to find satisfaction in Christ first. 
Like, this is, again, in the context of the Beatitudes. Think about how they start. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're to be aware of how holy God is and how we are not. We're to be aware of our sinfulness and grieve over that and know that we're forgiven by his grace. We're to know we're we're called to be meek, so we're not to use our authority or our strength to dictate something over someone else, but to use it to serve others. We're to hunger and thirst for righteousness because that's the place where we are satisfied. The Bible doesn't say, be married because that's when you will really be satisfied. Now, every movie you watch, every love song that you uh, listen to on whatever medium that you do, they, they will tell you another story. There are two sinners that need a savior that get married, and the satisfaction needs to come from Christ. Remember, that's the backdrop. And marriage takes work. It's hard work. So that, in in light of those realities, we're going to keep that in our mind. Jesus does say something about divorce. The Bible gives us a few explicit allowances for divorce, but really only one for pursuing divorce, and that is unfaithfulness. Except on the grounds of sexual immorality, that's what Jesus says. And, and when it talks about that, when it talks about adultery, it's, the, the original hearers would have understood the original language to mean the physical act of going outside the marriage and having physical intimacy with someone who's not your spouse. And then in the context of our day, it, it seems that, it, that we, we try to look for ways to import and, and add things to that word because if I, if I add that, then I can justify how I feel about this situation and I, I've got an out. And we just need to be sobered, friends, about what Jesus said. Because some will say, well, you know, I just married the wrong person. I married the wrong person. We're not, we're not compatible. I just, I made that mistake you know, I, got, I know God forgives me. I just married the wrong person. You must understand that. Now, if we think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 16, in that section, he addresses those who are married to unbelievers, whether it's a believing husband and an unbelieving wife or whether it's the believing wife and an unbelieving husband. This is what he says, and he casts a vision for reaching them for Christ. 1 Corinthians 7, 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul makes it clear, like, like stick it out. There, there's no greater difference between a husband and a wife than one who is redeemed by the blood of the lamb and has had their eyes open to the realities of the kingdom of heaven and one who is walking in darkness. You can't get a greater difference than that. And even then, Jesus says, yeah, why don't you stay together? There's a greater purpose. There's a grander vision. And I know that it's hard. Again, when I can't speak to every situation, 
Now, there is another cause. If we, if we further go into that section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 17, 15, it says, but if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So if you are married and, and you're abandoned, you can let them go. You're abandoned by an unbeliever and sometimes someone who's acting like an unbeliever, you, you can let them go. Now, I understand as I share those things, there's emotions that are just flying around. There's like, well, what about, what about this? What about this nuance to what's going on? Remember, Jesus is not giving a, an edict in which he wants people to just be crushed. Each situation is different. There are different details. There are different dynamics. There are different struggles. There are other sin issues that are going on. They're they're different. And I would appeal that you get counsel, that you get care, that you seek out the pastors, that you get care from counselors who are are trained biblically to, to walk with you. Don't just go for a simple answer. These these are, we want to understand the, the gravity and the holiness of, of, that's found in marriage, but let's not try to find like one little thing and just apply it to everything. We need to seek God's face in prayer, and don't look to the culture for answers. But I do want to answer two questions that I think are pretty common that, that pop up. What about physical abuse? Are you telling me? Jesus is saying if someone is being physically abused, they need to stick it out. If their spouse hasn't committed adultery, you get, you're telling me that's what Jesus is advocating for? Absolutely not. Jesus came to those who were broken. Jesus was compassionate and loving. A faintly burning wick he does not snuff out. Jesus is not advocating for someone to be in an abusive situation. And there are are realities that that happens in our world. And we need to have separation and we need to pull it out. And sometimes the authorities need to be called because that's just the right thing to do. We need to put ourselves in the middle to protect spouses or protect a wife or protect a husband that's being physically abused and certainly to protect children. We will absolutely do that. Jesus is not advocating for abuse to continue and he's absolutely not advocating that 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 is in any way good. Understand the whole counsel of God's word. So where does that fit into all this? Again, it's a mess. Sin is a mess. And these things take time to discern what is going on. And we can't, I can't speak generally because there's so many details in the specific situation. That's why it's so important to seek out pastoral counsel. And it's important to get counsel about these things. But it is real. That, that pops up. The other question that often pops up is what about marriage after divorce? I've been divorced. What, what, what should I do? What are the things that the Bible says? And there are some things that I think Scripture says that give clarity to that, but I would start in this place. There's a summary of truth about marriage that I state at the beginning of every wedding that I officiate at and that I've heard at pretty much every wedding I've gone to. And this is the statement. 
Marriage is an honorable estate instituted by God and signifies to us the mystical union which exists between Christ and his church. Marriage is therefore not to be entered into unadvisedly, but reverently, discreetly, and in the fear of God. That is true whenever one's thinking about getting married. And I would encourage us to start in that place when we want to answer the question. Are you wanting to enter into this because you think it's going to bring you comfort? Or you want to enter into this because uh, you, you think you need it to fulfill you? No, start with the place. No, we enter into this in the fear of God because we understand what God intended and what God designed. But yes, Scripture does speak to what does it look like to get married again. If, if a spouse is released from their their marriage because, they, because their spouse committed adultery because of unrepentant sin. There's not a command to, but yet there, there's the allowance for, yeah. I think the Bible that teaches us that we, we can be remarried. Or if a spouse is abandoned, and, and how do we define what abandoned looked like? Again, I think you need much conversation, but, but there's that freedom. And certainly when, when we come to Christ, we become new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. There's absolute transformation. It doesn't make that what we did before we came to Christ right. We want to grieve over that, but we're forgiven from that. And, and, in, and in my opinion, I can't speak for everyone, but it sure seems like in, in that situation, like, yeah, we can, we can get remarried because the old is gone and the new has come. And then, if, if we were in a classroom right now, I, I can only imagine that 12 hands would go up right now, go, but what? So let's, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about this more, I'm trying to just address what we see here in, in the text. But, but I want to, before we close our time, speak to how should we respond as a church? We've talked about what the scripture has to say, but how do we respond as a church? Because the reality is those who have, have experienced divorce oftentimes will not darken the door of a church building because they feel alone and they feel condemned before they walk in the door. When they see people who are in a marriage that on the outside at least appears to be going really, really well, they feel things that you aren't feeling. They're hanging around there all the time. So we, as a church, need to be leaning into this. If there's a reality that half of the marriages that happen in our culture end in divorce, we need to be aware of this, and we need to be lights in the midst of darkness. That came before this part of the text, that right, we're to, we're to be city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, salt and light. So how can we be salt and light? Well, we can know there's no simple answers. And don't try to give somebody a pat answer. 
Let's, let's, let's love them. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Would those who've experienced divorce experience that when they encounter our faith family? Would they experience that when they encounter any faith family in, in the world? That's what we want them to encounter because we are a family that that are broken and God was patient with our sins and flaws. So let us not come with judgment. Let's come with grace. And one commentator, Martin Lloyd-Jones, shared this. And he said, I share this hesitantly because I'm not, I don't want to, uh, to, to try to minimize the seriousness of adultery but, and, and divorce, but, but this needs to be said. On the basis of the gospel and in the interest of truth, I am compelled to say this. Even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin. But God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside the love of God or outside his kingdom because of adultery. Or if you think that your divorce was sin, if you're in that place, let us not think that we are outside the kingdom of God. No, if you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven, and I assure you of pardon. But hear the words of our blessed Lord. Go and sin no more. Come to the foot of the cross. Experience forgiveness. Experience the love of Christ. Experience his tender mercy. Experience the fact that he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And redirect your heart and change maybe the direction. If it was going the wrong way before, you can direct it towards Christ now. So I want to I address four categories of people, how we can help those people briefly. The first one is this category. Those who are here that aren't married, that want to be married. They're like, wait, this seems like you're talking to people who are married or have been married. No, this is important for you if you haven't been married. Uh, Jesus started with the Beatitudes. Understand rightly that your satisfaction comes from Christ alone. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're the ones that are satisfied. Get that right before you think about getting married because that person is going to disappoint you in some way. Is it a blessing to be married? Yes. It's also really hard work. Ask anyone who's been married in the room. They will let you know. But hunger and thirst for righteousness, commit to a heart of faithfulness. Let the Beatitudes be the guide of your life so that when you encounter marriage, you are thinking rightly and living rightly and and you have your heart kingdom-oriented and seek out a spouse who's kingdom-oriented. And if that spouse isn't kingdom-oriented, I do not advocate for dating evangelism, okay? I don't advocate for that. 
Don't think that if you start dating them that you're going to convince them to, to know Jesus. I have never known that to happen. I have known many a Christian to walk away from God and compromise their faith in that scenario. Leave them to the Lord. Introduce them to all your other Christian friends who can share Christ with them, but, but don't in the context of that relationship. Share Christ with them and see them transformed. Now back, I wasn't intending to talk about that. Back here, for those contemplating divorce. So you're married right now and you think, man, this is, I think you're missing an exception here. Friends, let's do everything that we can to fight for marriages. Let's do everything that we can, exhaust all possibilities to salvage marriages. If you are in marriage, married and you are struggling, do everything that you can. The temptation is to think that the other person is the one at fault, and there's this idea that if, oh, the divorce, I mean, like, that's the easy way out. That is the easy way. If we just, if, we, if this person was not in my life anymore, everything would be easy. Like, look me in the eye. I want you to hear something. Divorce is never the easy way out. Ever. Sometimes it has to happen. But it's never the easy way out. There are always bodies left in the wake. There's always hurt and pain. There's, all, there's always the awareness of the brokenness of this world. A friend of mine who sadly experienced divorce because her husband was unfaithful numerous times. When I interacted with her before, earlier this week, and this is what she told me. She said, just because we can doesn't mean we should. Just because Jesus said here, you can divorce if this happens, doesn't mean we go straight there at the first sign of trouble and infidelity. We fight we fight for our marriage. We go through the Matthew plan of discipline. We talk openly to our spouse. We set boundaries. We get counseling. And once all things have been exhausted and tears have been shed in prayer over and over again on behalf of that spouse, then you ask God, is this what I'm supposed to do now? And you still hesitate because this was a covenant made between you and your spouse and God. And that's a big deal. This comes from someone who's experienced the pain. But she had a grander view of God and a vision for what he could do. Let's fight for marriages. Get others involved. Don't try to do this on your own. I advocate don't try to do any of the Christian life on your own, but definitely don't encounter, engage this topic on your own. And for those who are going through a divorce or have been divorced, we want to have empathy. So I'm speaking to those who haven't walked through divorce as we walk with those 
who do, we need to have empathy. And why do I say empathy and not sympathy? Sympathy is kind of like when you just, you just kind of feel bad for someone. Oh, that's just really sad. But empathy is really someone who understands, who comes along, who enters into the pain. Romans 12, 15, weeping with those who weep. Not jumping in and taking sides or trying to give them some, well, they're going to get there, so you're going to be just fine, or telling them just to buck up. No, no, we need to come, and we need to pray with them, and we need to let them cry, and we need to feel the pain. And if you've never, you've never been divorced and you're caring for someone who's walking through that or who has walked through that, don't, don't think that you can understand. Be, because you can't. I've not walked through that. I, I can't understand in the sense of personally experiencing it. I can weep. I can grieve. But I'm not going to say I understand. I'm not going to be trite about that. But here's... Here's what you need to know as you are an encourager to them. And if you're someone who's walked through that, this is, this is a truth you need to know. There's one person who absolutely understands, and his name is Jesus. There was a perfect, unhindered relationship between the Son and the Father. They were together at creation. They saw all of creation established. They walked with the people of God. They, Jesus goes on a mission for the Father, and then, and then as he is on the cross, the most perfect, unhindered relationship, never hindered by sin, perfect fellowship with one another. The Father turns his face away. And we hear Jesus cry, Father, why have you forsaken me? There is one who understands the depth of the brokenness that you feel and the depth of the brokenness that your loved one feels. Because he felt it to a greater degree because his relationship was perfect. We must point we must point them to Christ. We must point them to the finished work of Christ. We must point them to the reality that Jesus bore our shame because that shame hangs over them all the time. Even when they found a place where there's been much grace in their life, there's still things that pop up and may pop up for the rest of their days. I don't know. So they need to know about Christ. They are going through so many emotions, they don't even know what they need. But they need to know not your words in that moment. They need to see Christ's love through you so that they know that they're not yesterday's trash tossed to the curb, but they are loved by God because of what Jesus has done. Be the arms of Christ. 
whether you're physically embracing them or you're bringing them into your family or you just include them in the normal parts of your life or you love on their children so that they can know what the love of Christ looks like and what the love of family looks like in the midst of brokenness, they can have a picture and a view of God and a view of Christ because of you. And that's the opportunity we have, church. Yes, Sometimes there's a need to share hard things because forgiveness needs to happen, whether the asking of forgiveness or the giving of forgiveness, and oftentimes that's a process to walk through. But pursue them. Make sure they don't feel alone. Those who've experienced this pain, some are here right now. Some are watching Some live across the street from you. Some you work with. The greatest thing they need is to encounter Christ and to know what he has done. These things are very complicated and need much prayer and discussion and dialogue with the Bible open. But remember the one who's sharing it. It's the one who gave his life that we can be made right with God and we stand here today in his righteousness and not our own. Let's pray. Father, as I, as we come before you this morning, there are a multitude of of questions that still need to be answered. As much as I've sought to talk about the amazing grace that has come through Christ, there's still the temptation that the enemy wants to to needle in and wants to lie and wants us to live in condemnation, the temptation that, that God wants, that, that uh, the enemy wants us to, to judge our brother or sister, that's there. So I ask God for your mercy right now. I ask God for you to overwhelm us with who Christ is, the one who spoke these words And the one who said, as he calls us to something greater, as he redirects our heart towards the kingdom, he solves the greatest problem by continuing to live righteously so we can receive the benefit of his righteousness. And I ask God that you would make us aware of Christ's righteousness right now and not our own. No matter what the situation is, Even as we sing, you might need to be seated to just reflect upon Christ. So I ask God for your mercy this morning. I ask God for you to meet us. I ask God for you to comfort us, guide us, and direct us. If we need to study more, may we study more. If we need help, may we not leave here without grabbing someone to cry on or to pray with. Because there's much grace that's available to us right now. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.